Hey everybody, it's good to be with you again today, and I'm excited to be continuing in our series on Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul while he was in a Roman prison to a small church in the ancient town of, of Philippi, and they are, they're worried about his safety, and, and he is comforting them through this letter, and he's encouraging them to look to Jesus for strength and for a model of what it looks like to live under persecution. And today, uh, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to chapter 2, verse 18, uh, but we're going to start by reading what is really the centerpiece of Philippians, for chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, what some call the Christ hymn or the Christ poem. And all of what Paul is saying in the, to the church in this letter is based around this section. It is, it is a section of, of scripture worth memorizing, and in fact, I'm going to invite you to read it with me in your homes, wherever you're watching this, as a kind of liturgical form of, of worship. So let's read this together. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now Paul is writing from a, a, a uh, from a prison, and he's doing all he can to, to pastor from a distance. There's no email, there's no texting, there's no Twitter or Instagram, no TikTok for him to dance on and sing, no Zoom. Uh, the only tool he has is to send a handwritten letter through trustworthy people and pray that it makes it to the church in Philippi. Well, we started a few weeks back talking about the joy that Paul had regarding uh, the church because they were full of joy, even under threat of persecution, and they seemed to be overtaken by Jesus in a very powerful way. But what I love about scripture is that it doesn't gloss over the messy stuff uh, either. The challenge Paul is giving to the church in the text is this, what does it look like uh, to live as a citizen of heaven while you live among the citizens of Rome? For you and I, the question would be, what does it look like? How does it play out to be a citizen of heaven? Because, as it says in Philippians 3.20, what Paul will say later, later, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. How ought those whose citizenship is in heaven live on earth? Earth? And this is an important question. Important question for the Philippians. If you remember, Philippians or the Philippi, in Philippi, uh, the, the town was treated differently than other cities in the first century under Roman rule. Philippi was like a little brother to Rome, a mini Rome. And so the people of Philippi, they were quite proud people. They were taught to be proud. Uh, they thought they were better than other towns. Paul says, do not get caught up in all that because it will not last. Only those things that are caught up and connected to Christ will last. That doesn't mean that, that we're uninvolved in earthly matters, Canadian matters, U.S. matters, but we relate to earthly political matters with a citizenship above and beyond them that ultimately is not affected by the comings and goings of political parties and policies. And so the same stresses and strains should not be ours, and the way we respond to the things that, are often, that often get earthly citizens in an uproar ought to look different to us. The way we respond to them ought to look different. 
So how ought those whose citizenship is in heaven live on earth? Well, simply by emulating the model citizen of heaven, Jesus. In Philippians 1, 27 and 28, Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. And what's Paul saying? Well, when Christians do not run around like chickens with their heads cut off, when we're not caught up in the frenzy of, of mudslinging and fear, the world notices and it wonders what kind of community this is, it, this is. It's meant to look different. Have you noticed how many in the church today are as captivated by the world as the world is? The hope of the gospel and, and the community that lives out that hope in humility was always meant to make the world turn their heads and notice. When Christians gave their lives for the name of Jesus, with, with smiles on their faces and, and excited that they would be with Jesus soon, it surprised people and many came to follow Jesus. One of the great, greatest catalysts for people coming to Jesus in the first century was the peace of Christians in the middle of trial. Very difficult times. A peace that was more powerful than the political situation, more powerful than persecution, more powerful than, than even death. Suffering was never seen as a sign that God was blind. It was, it was seen as an invitation to know Jesus more and be more like him. In chapter 1, verse 29, Paul says, for, for it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. I, I love this text because it, it captures something that the, the church in the West, especially in the last hundred years or so, has ignored. That to associate with Jesus means tough, difficult times of suffering. It has been granted, Paul says, it's been gifted to you to suffer for his name. It means that God loved you so much, he was willing to let you suffer so that you might understand and be closer to Jesus. What a strange concept for us today. Paul is saying, be glad that you do not just see me suffer far away in prison and say to yourself, man, I wish I could suffer for Jesus too so that I can live out my undying love for him. Paul says, don't worry, you're going to get your chance. In, in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Every time we see the word therefore in a text, we have to ask the nerdy pastor question. What is the therefore therefore? What is it trying to connect? It is connecting their suffering to what comes next. Since you are suffering, make sure you live in unity. Do not try to deal with your, your sufferings disconnected from Christ and do not deal with your sufferings disconnected from each other. Be united with him, be comforted by his love and be connected to him and each other through his spirit. What Paul is really saying is, listen, you have all these things. You have love, tenderness, compassion, but they are fully developed and experienced when they are also applied to your relationship with others. Paul is, is saying, Philippians, it, it's great that you are feeling connected to Christ, loved by him. You sense his spirit with you. However, if you really want to make me happy, and by the way, I'm sitting here in prison and I'm your pastor. If you really want to make me happy, apply everything you have with Christ to others within the church. 
The Apostle John wrote something uh, similar to this in his first lesson, his first letter, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his, his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So, dear friends, since God loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. So, God's love is not a feeling or something to be, to be held to ourselves. It is fully experienced only when it is shared. It is active. It's part and parcel with his gospel, which must be shared, shared with all and lived out in community. And hey, it's easy. If you're, if you're wondering how to become like-minded, literally the, the, the word is one in soul. How, how do we become one in soul, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind? Paul says in verse 3, it's easy. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. This is how you live in, in, in unity. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, one of the reasons I mentioned a few weeks ago why I'm, I'm preaching out of the NIV translation for this, this series is, th is this very verse. In some other translations, uh, like say the ESV, uh, this verse is translated like this. It says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do you notice the difference? Here's the thing. In verse 4, the original Greek does not have the word only. It also often does not include the word also. Those have been added to bring kind of more of a fluid read to the verse. But unfortunately, what they do is they take away from the impact of Paul's words. The NIV nails it with little room for exception to this command of Paul. You're not looking for your own interests, but for the interests of others. The Philippians would, would have felt the weight of that statement because it, it went against everything that they were taught, everything they were told to believe about themselves. Whoa, that's pretty heavy duty, Paul. Pa Paul, we're Philippians. The whole point is outdoing the other. Humility is the, it's the H word. It's, it's a dirty word. We, we, in our day, might also say, you know, Paul, maybe, maybe humility worked in your day, but it doesn't get you too far in 2021. You get stepped on, you get taken advantage of, you, you, get, you get killed out there, you get killed in business, in the schoolyard, in, in a marriage. Humility means defeat. And Paul would respond, I think, in two ways. He would say, listen, humility means that we need to change our mindset. You need to change your mindset. Have the mind of Christ. Well, what is that? Well, the mind of Christ, as we're, we're, we'll read, as we have read, is to give up everything, personal rights, position, protection for the other. Notice in Philippians 2, 5 to 11, it's not just a story to strengthen us. It's not just a theology to give us knowledge. It, it's both those things. But ultimately, what does Paul say it is for? It is meant for us to apply to our relationships. Starting in verse 5, he says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And what is this mindset? Well, being in the very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Don't we always think of how we can take advantage of our position? 
Instead, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He had already humbled himself to being a man. Now he's humbled himself further by becoming obedient to death. Even death, let's go further, even death on a cross, the most shameful. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and he gave him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We immediately notice that the way to glory, joy, hope that is modeled by Jesus is the exact opposite that is modeled for us by the world. And the very opposite of what we're told. The, the way is, is the way up, Scripture tells us, this story tells us, is to be brought low. The cross comes before the crown. We need to have the mind of Christ. Humility also means that we need to change our focus. Imagine how the, the, the word, these words would have come across to the Philippians. So Jesus didn't use divinity to his advantage. All the Philippians thought about is how they could take advantage. Make himself, it says he made himself nothing. The Greek word for that is kenosis. You'll hear that a few times. Kenosis, it's an emptying of your rights, your desires, your, want, uh, your wants for something else. Kenosis means an emptying of yourself. He made himself a servant, literally a slave. He humbled himself. He went to a cross. In a, in a political culture, the, the social media culture that we swim in daily, we are told to fight. We are told about our rights. We are told to shut people down if we disagree, shame people, get justice. We surround ourselves with people who tell us we are right and to be angry, and we shun those who challenge us. That is not the way of Christ, not the way of unity, not, not the upside-down way of the gospel. We need to change our focus, Paul says. Model the way of Christ. How much of how we deal with, with suffering and injustice against us comes from how we witness others deal with animosity? How much of it comes from others telling us how right we are, how angry we ought to be, and how we could get back at them, and how we should? And how much comes from Christ's example? Who by our world standards had all the reasons to lash out, and to cancel, and to bring, bring down justice, but he humbled himself. Jesus made it pretty clear to his disciples and to you, uh, to, to you and I in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verse 24. It says, And Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my, my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. So Philippians 2, 5 to 11, it's not just a good story. It's not just good theology, a good ancient hymn or a poem. It's not just a description of how our salvation came about. Through it, Jesus is giving us a proper model, a proper perspective, and a proper place to position ourselves. He gives us our proper model. The, the pattern we see in, in verses 5 to 11 is not just how Jesus saved us. It's also the kind of life he has invited us to live out, an unoffendable life where we're, we're quick to give up what we are told we deserve, what we've earned and, and what we want in order to live in unity and the power of what's called a cruciform life, a life shaped by the model of Christ. Jesus, who canonically <laughs> gave up everything he deserved, earned, and desired, is our model. He also gives us our proper perspective. Why? Because 
because of where Jesus is now and what will eventually take place before his throne. See, this is an important part of the gospel that we are often quick to forget. The gospel does not end with you and I being saved. We are saved towards this great day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that the full gospel does not end with, with our salvation. It ends with the saved, the redeemed around the throne praising Jesus. The gospel places Jesus at the center. That's the gospel story. Jesus is at the center, not us. The problem is in my life that I am so quick to grab and embrace all those things that I think define me and can use to my advantage that I have no space left for Jesus. I'm too busy cramming things into my life that entertain me for a short time. Too much of my heart is crammed with worry about how I am perceived by others, respected by my family, uh, about injustices done to me, again, maybe in my family. I forget that my perspective needs to be fashioned around and focused on the exalted Christ whose name is above all other names and who in humility purchased my life and saved me. How liberating it is to place Jesus on the throne and not myself. It's a responsibility I don't want and I'm not very good at. I'm not a very good Jesus. But my perspective when I properly recognize Jesus on the throne is life-giving. Jesus also places us in our proper position. Throughout Philippians, Paul talks about being in Christ or united with Christ. In chapter 2 verses verses 1 to 4 it says, therefore if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, literally in the Greek it's to being in Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. All of the things Paul lists in Philippians 1 to 4 are birthed out of the fact that we are in Christ. The way we are able to give up all that we think is so important, and I would say the way that we can live a life of drastic unoffendableness, is I'm making up words now, of drastic unoffendableness is if we open up our grip, the thing that we're clenching so much, all the stuff that we, we think makes us who we are, if we stop placing ourselves on shifting ground, our accomplishments, our titles, our position, and find our identity solely in Christ. Well, how do we do this? Well, it's simple. Paul tells us in verse 3, in humility, we count others more significant than ourselves. That's simple, right? Just be humble. But here's the thing. Humility is the anecdote for selfishness and conceit. When we are humble, we stop positioning ourselves on ground that, that we have to protect and we have to fight and we have to justify ourselves. Ground like our accomplishments or, or how we're perceived. That is such fragile, shifting ground. And so humility brings us peace because we're not always fighting for that kind of stuff. We're happily giving up. Also, humility is not about self-despising. I think that's important. Humility is not about beating ourselves up or, or concentrating on all the bad bits of our lives and our character. It's actually about not thinking of ourselves at all. <laughs> Taking ourselves out of the equation. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. But most importantly, and the main gain of humility, is that humility makes room for Jesus. The more I find my joy in how I'm seen, respected, justified, my accomplishments, the less space I leave for Jesus to fill me with himself, to fill me with his joy. 
That's what humility does. That's, that's what an emptying of the self does. The reason we are meant to live canonic lives, cruciform lives, is so that we make more room for Jesus in our lives. And that's where life is found. That's where an untouchable identity, an untouchable worth, an untouchable basis for flourishing comes from. That's what we were created for. And so the more we give up ourselves in order to be filled by Christ, the more we become the people we were created to be. Jesus would invite us, the, the example of Jesus would invite us to, to put it all down. Empty our hands of all the titles we've collected to build a false version of ourselves that is acceptable to others and ourselves. Release it all. Make space in all the junk we've accumulated so that Jesus can fill that space up. If we don't fill it up with Jesus, we will fill it up with whatever comes our way. And it is all fragile, it is all fleeting, and it is all anxiety-inducing. So how do we practice this? Here's some homework for this week. How do we practice humility? First, by letting arguments go. Just some stuff to work with this week. If you have not yet convinced someone of how correct you are, let it go. Even if an injustice is being done to you, you're being misunderstood, trust it to God. Leave it to God. Also, <laughs> stop name dropping and telling stories about yourself that make you look good to other people to impress. This is a personal one. <laughs> there is nothing wrong with stories about ourselves. It's, it is, it's how we get to know each other. They might just be entertaining stories, but as an, as an exercise in restraint and humility in kenosis, try holding back on the hilarious story this week. 1 Corinthians 1.31 says, Therefore, as it, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Boast about Jesus and what he's doing. Lastly, make it about other people. Keep track of how many times this week you have a conversation about you and how often you can make it about someone else. Romans 12.10 says, Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Outdo each other with kindness. Lash it on to, throw it on to other people. Have you met the kind of people that, that make you feel like you're the most important person in the room by the way they ask questions and focus their attention on you? Jesus had a practice of, of bringing those who all others would push to the back to the front, to tell the unloved that they were loved, to go out of his way to offer attention to the ignored. I don't think we, we've ever lived in a more disconnected time than today, not in my lifetime. A time when, when the connection that we do have is mostly digital and is conducive to tearing down, that pushes self-promotion over humility. But humility lets the argument go. It, it trusts injustices to God and it looks to, to remember the forgotten. It's the, 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 it's a display that surprises the world. Verse 14 of chapter 2 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding flat, fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. You hear the voice of a pastor there. It is a sacrifice to be humble, but it brings life. It's counterintuitive and it's counter to our culture right now. But that is what it means to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. It's a, a canonic giving up of ourselves that Paul calls us to in Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. He says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't conform to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test 
and approve what, is God, what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. See, the thing about a sacrifice is a sacrifice doesn't complain about a lack of recognition. It's laid it all down. It doesn't conform to the world because it's already laid it all down. That's the method of our salvation, but it's also the model that we are called to live. The canonic giving up of ourselves for the sake of the unity of the church and also for our own spiritual health and growth and for God's glory. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for the display of humility that is so, uh, so opposite of what we are used to in our lives, what we come up against every day, which we see in the world and we also see in our hearts and in our minds. This continued desire to be recognized, to be understood, um, when injustice comes our way, to, to not give up the fight so that we don't, are not seen as pushovers. God, I pray that you would teach us what it means to not only see your son Jesus as, as providing the method for our salvation, but also providing the model of how we live out that salvation. I pray this week that in big and small ways, we would give up some of those things that we fight for, that we, that we should just be giving over to you. And I pray that as we make room in our lives by letting go of so many things that we've used to, to, um, to self-promote ourselves or to, to show ourselves as, as some, someone important or whatever it might be, as we let go of those things, you would fill that space with more of your spirit and you would grow us and mature us more into the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, I love you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and may he give you his eternal peace. Amen.